Well, we have been in the thick of the study on the fruit of the Spirit now for three and a half months, if you can believe it, devoting an average of two Sundays to each of these fruits. And in doing so, we operate really outside, I think, the norm of most churches. I don't know what your experience has been, but I can tell you that in my uh, 30 years of pastoring, uh, most churches would find it very shocking that we would spend three months just on the entire book of Galatians, never mind two verses. Uh, yes, we do things very differently here at PRBC. Uh, we're in no rush, though. This is God's Word. And one of the great benefits to studying this particular section is that it helps us to become more like our Lord Jesus Christ. James Boyce, pastor 10th Presbyterian Church, back a ways now, uh, wrote in his Foundations of the Christian Faith this about the fruit of the Spirit. Quote, these virtues were clearly in Christ to the highest degree and are also to be in all Christians according to Paul's teaching, end quote. The Bible teaches us that this fruit comes from God, and God himself has displayed this in unmistakable ways throughout human history. We have it recorded for us in the Bible. And that those of us who belong to God, who are born again, will certainly represent him by displaying these fruits. Now, if you're looking for any indication from Scripture as to what you ought to look like and what you should be characterized by, here it is. The fruit of the Spirit. It's really the litmus test of spiritual maturity. It's God's will, you see, that every Christian, bar none, masters this fruit and exemplifies it. It makes no difference what your upbringing was or what your personality is or what your ethnic traditions are. A new nature trumps all that. So no Christian has any excuse not to excel in these fruits. So how have you rated so far? It's an honest question. Are you sharpening your image for Christ? Do you pray about imitating Christ? It's easy to be just like the world, you see, and to fall back on the counterfeit fruit that, that we were so used to in our, in our unconverted life. But if people are going to see that you're different and see Christ in you, it'll be by the constant practice of these Christian virtues. Now, don't underestimate their importance in your life. They're evidences that the Spirit is in work in you and growing you. Now, having said that, I'm particularly excited to talk about this fruit of the Spirit, to bring into clear focus for you what Paul calls faithfulness, and for a, a few good reasons. I think I have four here, the first of which is that faithfulness is the key to success in every aspect of the Christian life. Every aspect. Now, whether we're talking about missionary work, pastoring, full-time Christian ministry, parenting, being a good husband or a good wife, or displaying the, the rest of the fruits of the Spirit, uh, is absolutely important for us to do consistently and unmistakably. You need to understand how the success of what you do in the faith and the peace of mind that comes with it are directly related to this particular fruit, to faithfulness. Now, this was especially true of Jesus. In Isaiah 11, verse 5, 
as Isaiah predicted the root of Jesse, speaking of Messiah, he says, righteousness will be the belt around his hips and faithfulness the belt around his waist. So it must be with us. Second reason is that understanding faithfulness to God brings into sharper focus a better understanding of our sin and its cause. Helps us to understand our sin and its cause. What do I mean by that? Well, the Bible is pretty clear that nothing external to you causes you to sin. You can never blame your sin on anything or any circumstance. If you knowingly sin, it's because of what's in your heart at that very moment that's motivating you. And that's news, I think, to a lot of Christians, but that's exactly what Jesus says. It's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but rather what comes out of his heart. And Jesus gives us a representative list of these things that come out of our heart. In Matthew 15, verse 19, he he says, Out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and blasphemies. You see, a great percentage of our sin is brought on by idolatrous thinking, by replacing Christ as the object of our affection with something else and then pursuing that object at all costs. It's really an idol, and this idol could be anything, really, even something good, obedient children, a good-paying job, a computer, a relationship, pain-free life, happiness. Whatever it is that you think you must have or else you won't be content in life is an idol. Now, the Bible calls the worship of such idols spiritual adultery. James uses that term. And that makes sense, I think. I crave, I want, I desire, I love something more than I want to please Christ at that very moment. Uh, It's very helpful to understand the heart dynamic and that most of the time sin is about giving our allegiance to something other than our first love and then faithfully serving it. So most of our sin is really a matter of who you're more faithful to at any given time. So you see how faithfulness helps us to understand our sin and its causes. Third reason to study faithfulness is that displaying displaying it consistently in our lives allows us to be more effective witnesses for Christ. It allows us to be more effective in our witness for Christ. You see, when we're faithful to God, in situations where unbelievers expect us not to be, they take notice. They see something's different about us, and our faith becomes really attractive to them at that point. In this fallen world, it's usually that people it's usual that people will cheat just a little here and there and bend the rules once in a while, occasionally compromise standards and principles, you know, in order to get ahead. And these moral lapses hardly are, are hardly bothersome to their conscience because everyone does it. But this is where Christians show themselves to be different. At least they should. And when they're faithful to the rules, obey, obedient to government, submissive to authority, they stick out like a sore thumb. Same was true even in Old Testament times. Men like Joseph and Daniel 
They didn't bend the rules. They didn't compromise their faith. They were faithful to God, even in the little things. And as a result, God used them in great ways in a fallen world. And by the way, they were just teenagers when they started out. Fourth and final reason for studying faithfulness is, as you might expect, that it has a counterfeit in the world that can deceive us. There is a difference, you see, between the world's ideal idea of faithfulness and biblical faithfulness. No one can deny that there's a sense of faithfulness in the world. I think we've, we've all experienced this. We've all met people from time to time who seem to be faithful, anywhere from atheists to staunchly religious people. There's even honor among thieves, right? But biblical faithfulness is far different from worldly faithfulness because in, it's, it's always grounded in a relationship with Christ and his word. When Christians are faithful to the Lord first and foremost, they will be faithful to everyone else, even to crooked people. Because our faithfulness is not conditioned upon a person or what they do. It's not conditioned upon circumstance. But rather, it's conditioned on a fact that God demands it in every instance. Now, more than this, it's God who declares every Christian faithful, whether the world ever thinks of us that way or not. And Christians demonstrate their faithfulness when they obey God's word carrying out the Lord's will for our lives on a daily basis manifests our faithfulness. God is the one who had created us faithful in Christ, and he is the one to whom we are ever faithful. In other words, he is the source and he is the object of our faithfulness. So you realize then that non-Christians are unable really to be faithful to the Lord in this way because of their fallen nature. Right, Paul makes this very clear in Romans when he teaches that in a, in a depraved, unregenerate state, unbelievers are simply slaves to sin. And that means that they cannot help but obey sin and disobey the Lord. And more than this, God does not entrust responsibility to unbelievers except the responsibility to believe and repent and obey the gospel. Jesus' parable of the talents, you may remember in Matthew 25, proves what I'm saying. Of the three servants in the parable, only two were considered good and faithful, right? Remember that? The third one was considered wicked and lazy, and he was condemned. Now, the world would see it differently, would see him differently. They would think he'd done nothing wrong. He, he might not have increased the value of the master's property, but, but he stored his talent in safekeeping and returned to the master his property in the condition in which he had found it. So what's so bad? No doubt he was industrious even in protecting the master's assets. But Jesus helps us to understand, however, that the wicked servant's act of faithfulness fell far short of true faithfulness because it didn't advance the master's kingdom. It wasn't fueled even by right motives. His act of faithfulness had a ring of self-preservation to it, and therefore it was selfish. 
being more interested in his own safety than in the promoting of the master's agenda. And here is where we get an idea of the difference between the faithfulness that the world produces and the faithfulness that the Holy Spirit produces in believers. Both may exhibit similarities, but it's what you cannot see that makes the difference. Only true spiritual faithfulness has God as its object, is motivated by a desire to please him. Those are things you really can't see. They're in the heart. And it is therefore not situational as worldly faithfulness is. And this is why the world, why worldly faithfulness will fail when it's pushed to the limits and it succeed only when being faithful preserves self-interests. There is also a ring of hypocrisy in worldly faithfulness as well. Think about this. It's more interested in receiving faithful treatment than actually giving it. Example of that is that people in this world can be quite at ease in cheating government, but the government mustn't be, must be faithful to them or else it doesn't get their vote. And when you think of all the presidential scandals that we've witnessed over our lifetime, it's not the scandalous activity that people in the world are most upset by, but rather upset with the fact that it was covered up. The unethical behavior, inappropriate politicking, even illicit sexual activity of politicians are not what get the nation riled as long as those politicians are transparent about it. Their brand of faithfulness allows for transparency, but it doesn't allow for cover-up. Now, Christians can get tangled up in this kind of counterfeit faithfulness rather easy because, because it's so pervasive and it's so accepting. It's like worry. And so we study the genuine article then today to keep ourselves sharp. Now, with those reasons in place, let's begin to paint a, a portrait, if you will, of spiritual faithfulness. And our starting point, of course, with all of these fruit, is God himself. So I would say that, first of all, God is faithful. God is faithful. True faithfulness characterizes God. His very nature demands it, since he is immutable or unchangeable. Malachi 3, verse 6, For I am the Lord, I change not. God is immutable. He's, he's never changing, and therefore he is faithful. He's also faithful in his dealings with everyone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, In everything you were enriched in him, speaking to the Corinthians, in all speech and in all knowledge, so that you are not lacking in any gift. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Here we see that God was faithful to the Corinthians in that they lack nothing. He sustained them and provided everything they needed. Another way in which God was faithful to them was in trials. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10.13. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tried beyond what you are able, 
but with the trial will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. God proves faithful to us even in the area of suffering and trials. He takes common, ordinary trials and he tailors them to fit our particular situation so that we can handle them. If we resort to biblical strategies, of course, and and that they will end so that we can endure them. Well, well, I've heard though that many tri- I've had many trials in my life that I've I've found unbearable. Well, Christians who Christians who who find trials in their lives to be unbearable need to know that it's not because God failed in keeping his promise in sending bearable ones to them but rather because they simply don't know how to manage bearable trials. That's really the answer to that question. We know God is faithful. That's what it says. We, on the other hand, are, all, are not always faithful in our handling of trials. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24, Paul mentions how God will bring our sanctification to completion. He says, faithful is he who calls you he also will bring it to pass. And in 2 Thessalonians 3.3, he tells us that the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. The Lord's faithfulness is really a theme throughout the entire Bible. We can begin in the Old Testament. It was so important, in fact, that it became a theme in the temple hymn book, that is, the Psalter. The psalmist's saying of this so that the entire congregation could sing of God's loyal love and that it endures forever. Now, if God is faithful, and he is, then God's people must be faithful. As we've come to see by now, there are certain of God's attributes that he shares with his people so that they may imitate him, and faithfulness is one of them. We can remind ourselves of, a, of an axiom here that will help us. The axiom that we actually have for each of the fruit. If God is this way, then his people whom the Holy Spirit enables will be this way too. That's the axiom. And so we plug every fruit into this axiom. If God is loving, we'll be loving too. If he's joyful, we will be joyful. If he's peaceful and patient and kind, so will we be all of those. And now, faithfulness as well. Paul used this axiom to establish his credibility with the Corinthians. In fact, he essentially told them that because there is no wavering or ambiguity with God, he himself, who belongs to God, is also honest and straightforward in his dealings with them. Here's how he puts it, 2 Corinthians 1.18. But as God is faithful, so our word to you also does not vacillate, but is always yes. Paul's point is that if there is no ambiguity with God, there should be none with his followers. Now, I want to say that faithfulness is such an important concept that we get our arms around, and I think that it's always helpful if we can talk about it in other terms so let's get our let's get as practical as we possibly can about this 
about spiritual faithfulness and what it looks like because it should be unmistakable in our lives. And I would say that in explaining faithfulness, it really has to do with reliability, with fidelity, fidelity that evokes a person's trust in you. As one Greek lexicon put it, it refers to, quote, the state of being someone in whom confidence can be placed, end quote. Now, this, this is characteristic of you if you profess Christ. You are dependable. You are trustworthy. You're loyal. You're reliable. People can take your word at face value. They can believe you when you say yes because your yes is yes. You're a truth teller. You're honest in your dealings with people. Is that how those who know you best or those who work with you on a regular basis would characterize you? You know, if we were to interview them kind of off to the side in private. Does it bother your conscience when you're not even in the slightest trustworthy? Are you conscientious about being a faithful Christian who refuses to sink to a worldly distortion of true faithfulness. We should be. Now, when we talk about faithfulness, I think it's best, as I say, to understand it in other terms. We talked about reliability and trustworthiness and fidelity. Here's one that you know, but you often don't use, but it's a good term, and that is stewardship. Stewardship. What does it mean to be a good steward? Well, the Old Testament uses a number of different words to develop the idea of a steward. According to Genesis 15-2, Abraham's steward was Eliezer. He was a slave who had responsibility to care and maintain Abraham's property. In Genesis 43, verses 16 to 19, Joseph's steward also had charge over keeping Joseph's house in order preparing his meals, receiving guests, carrying out every task that Joseph put to him. And then there is Zimri, the steward of Elah, king of Israel, who, according to 1 Kings 16.9, was placed in charge of half of the king's chariots. He was also given authority to command a large portion of the king's army. So as we pull the lens back on all of these examples, we're, we're starting to see some some commonality. We learn from these instances that there were at least three common elements of an Old Testament steward. One was that he was a subordinate who served a superior. Often he was a slave, but not in every case. But he was certainly a subordinate that served a superior. Number two, he was charged with managing property that wasn't his own, but rather entrusted to his care. He was responsible for its well-being. And number three, this is implied, but I think it should be obvious, the steward was held accountable to his superior for whatever was entrusted to his care. We see this kind of steward in the New Testament as well with um, maybe a a little bit fuller explanation. I'll, I'll get into that with you. He was certainly a caretaker of his master's property, Uh, with the exception of Matthew uh, 20, verse 8, which is the only instance where the steward is actually the owner and caretaker of his own vineyard. Uh, Every other context where stewards are mentioned, stewards are the caretakers 
of, of, of the property of another, of a superior, and they are actually answerable to him, like Susanna was, who gave charge over Herod's household, or had charge over Herod's household, or Erastus, who was, who was uh, the Roman city treasurer. And a steward in the New Testament will be rewarded also for his faithfulness, as the two servants in Jesus' parable of the talents were. Or he might be punished for being unfaithful, as the third servant of the same parable was. Now, the New Testament takes, then, this ancient Near Eastern concept of steward, who was likely a slave that was entrusted with the care of his master's household and property, and either rewarded or punished, depending on whether or not he was faithful to his charge, to speak of stewardship of Christians. And it is an apt description of faithfulness to Christ. Let me say that we do have uh, this idea of slave-master relationship in the Christian, uh, in the Christian life. There is a slave-master relationship, to be sure, Paul tells us in Romans 6 that believers are no longer slaves to sin, but rather slaves to Christ, right, and to righteousness. So he's our Lord, we are his stewards. We also know that we are entrusted with everything that we have, including our own lives. So really, technically, nothing is our own property. It all belongs to, to the Lord. Is it not true that you were bought with a price, that you're not your own, 1 Corinthians 6.20? If God has bought and redeemed your very life out of condemnation to be used for his purposes, then everything you have, including your very life, God has entrusted to your care to cultivate and produce and to bring an eternal return for his honor. This is why Paul says, redeem the times for the days are evil. All believers, then, are God's stewards entrusted with everything that they have for the purpose of managing it for the master. And finally, as God's stewards, we all have to give an account to him someday for how faithful we were with what he gave us. No question. Did we use it for his glory? Do we use it to advance the kingdom for, for spreading the truth on this earth, for destroying every word that set itself up against the word of God, to raise godly children, to nurture godly marriages, and so on? We can go on and on. Peter picks up on this theme of godly stewardship in his first epistle. In chapter 4, verse 10, he calls every believer a steward of the manifold grace of God. What does he mean by that? Well, the, the manifold grace of God is... God's grace that he manifests through spiritual gifts as well as through the fruit of the Spirit that he entrusted to all believers for the benefit of the body. So we're accountable to God to display them for the benefit of the body. Paul tells Titus that elders are considered stewards of God's flock. They were given a trust and they're obligated, a duty to be the caretakers of those believers that God put under their care. They're held accountable to manage the flock and look after the spiritual well-being of each individual sheep, all under the authority of the chief, chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, to whom they are eventually answerable. 
Now, if that is what a steward of God is, then stewardship is what characterizes every believer. Some define stewardship this way, and I think it's really a concise and accurate definition. It's very simple. Spiritual stewardship is is God-given responsibility with accountability. And it's what makes life truly worth living. It's really what gives us meaning and purpose in life, this stewardship. What an incentive it is really to preach the gospel, right? The context of the gospel actually shows that God created us to be caretakers of the earth. Think about this now. Adam was to rule and subdue the earth. He received God, a God-given responsibility and he was held to account the very moment he was unfaithful. And after the fall, man lost the capability to, to be an effective steward for, for God on the earth, although God will still measure each human being according to how well he manages God's property, including his own life, for his glory. In other words, God will still judge the unsaved according to their stewardship, that is, according to their work. Listen to, Roman, uh, to Revelation 20, verse 12. John says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the dead were judged according to their deeds. In Luke 12, Jesus addresses this in another parable about unfaithful servants. Listen to an extended account here in verses 42 to 48. Who then is the faithful and sensible steward? whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, oh, my master will take a long time to come, and he begins to beat the other slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, then the master of the slave will come on a day that he does not expect, and at an hour that he does not know, and he will cut him in two and assign him a place with unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accordance with his will will receive many blows. But the one who did not know it and committed acts deserving of a beating will receive only a few blows from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And to whom they entrust much, of him they will ask all the more. These are the words of Christ. <clears throat> it's in a parable. It's rather comprehensive. It speaks figuratively of believers who are faithful and are rewarded upon the master's return. It also speaks figuratively of unbelievers who are obviously unfaithful to Christ. They will experience condemnation that is proportional to the degree of their unfaithfulness of all that God has given them in life. This is where we see that there will be degrees of punishment in hell, which is a great demonstration, by the way, of God's grace even in punishment. Well, I, I never thought unbelievers as being accountable to God for the same things as believers. Well, consider this. 
The Apostle John tells us in his first epistle that Cain was clearly not a genuine believer in the Lord. He actually says that. And, and Cain protested his stewardship when God asked him, where was his brother Abel? Cain's answer is, am I, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that question was a resounding yes. We're to love our neighbor, even our enemy. So part of stewardship means caring for others. Make no mistake, unbelievers cannot obey Christ, but they will nevertheless be held accountable for their disobedience. The gospel message then is plain enough. Here's how the gospel message relates to faithfulness. You can try to fulfill the status of faithful steward yourself and fail and be condemned. Or you can repent of your futile attempts, embrace Christ, have Christ's faithfulness imputed to you, and be enabled by the Holy Spirit to manifest it in your life for God's glory. Only two options. Unbelievers who lost the ability to be faithful stewards of God in the fall, as Cain did, can, through redemption, gain it back and go on to fulfill the universal mandates of stewardship in the way that will please the Lord. They can. They must believe and repent. Well, the bottom line for Christians, though, is how faithful are we as God's stewards? It's an important question. It's one you ought to be asking yourself. How faithful are we as God's stewards? And we can ask this question of ourselves, I think, at every point in our lives. How faithful a steward am I in my duties as a spouse, in the way that I use my time for the Lord, in the way I raise my children, in my work ethic, in my practice of my spiritual gifts in the local body, in my thought life, in the way I keep the Lord's day, in the way I use the Lord's money, there are important questions to ask ourselves because every believer will get his and her chance to tell the Lord personally, face to face, in heaven someday. I want you to consider that for a moment. It's a very sobering thought. Paul brings it up in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. He says that every believer will have to give an account to God, quote, whether good or bad. Now, this passage isn't referring to bad in the sense of sin, sinful or sins, because Paul is talking to believers, and believers have had their sins forgiven in Christ. No, bad here is in the sense of worthless or useless. And the Lord is going to assess how well we managed everything that he entrusted to our care while on earth. Did we redeem the times? Did we put our energies toward furthering the kingdom? Were we busy about the Lord's will in all areas of our life? Or did we waste our time and our energy and our words and our actions and so on on our own pleasures for our own ends? He develops this idea further back a couple of chapters in 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, back a whole book in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verses 10 to 17, he speaks of our participation in building the temple of God, that is, the body of Christ. And Paul calls us to build well. 
using costly materials that will stand God's test at the end of time. This is how he puts it. Now, if anybody builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet only as through fire. The reference to gold and silver and precious stones refers to faithful ministry, time used wisely, energies and actions and speech, all used in a way to build up the church. God's stewards invest in heaven and they squander nothing that's been entrusted to them. So those believers who do produce what Paul calls wood, hay, and stubble produce works that are of no eternal value. They amount to nothing, and they will be burned up in God's assessing fire. This is not a judicial judgment, please understand, that was taken care of in Christ's cross work, but it's rather an assessment of our work on earth as Christians. Witnessing and evangelizing people is a worthwhile endeavor because it produces something that will add to the eternal value of the body of Christ, more believers. Discipling others, being faithful to minister to spouses, to, to parent children in godly ways, to stand up for the truth. These are worthwhile endeavors that have eternal value. When we carry on faithfully this way, we show ourselves to be faithful servants. As we come back to 2 Corinthians 5 then, with a knowledge of 1 Corinthians 3, we know that there will be some stewards of God who will be found to have been more faithful than others with what God has entrusted to them. And it will be that some will give a good account to the Lord and others will give a bad one. Most have looked to Jesus' words in the parable of the faithful servant as the likely commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. Now we know that at this event, at the end of time, those who have a good accounting to Jesus will receive his commendation. What do you suppose he will say to those who give a bad account of their Christian lives? It's difficult enough to think that we might ever have to give a bad account of our stewardship to the Lord, never mind to hear him voice his disappointment of us to our faces. How should these biblical truths then motivate us, beloved? They should motivate us to be faithful until we see Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.2 that it is required of God's stewards to be found trustworthy. When the Lord does come, he will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of human hearts and then praise will come to each person from God. 
So let's examine every aspect of that which God has entrusted to our care to make sure that we are being faithful. And in fact, in order to help us to do just that, I would like to offer several principles of stewardship that will be of help to us, to help us examine how faithful we are for Christ and how we might become more faithful. We will wait till next time for that. Father, we're grateful for your goodness to us. We're grateful for this portion of your word that is so very sobering, a very sobering topic. And we do pray, O oh God, that you would indeed find us to be faithful. And as you are patient with us, that we would seek your grace and we would find it sufficient for the tasks that we have in being faithful servants. Pray that we will become more conscientious about, about the stewardship we've received from your hand upon conversion, the new life that comes with, uh, with an abundance of privileges. And we pray that we would handle them all in a way that would please you, in a way that would make the faith attractive, in a way that would grow us and mature us. We pray that we would squander none of the time that you have bought back for us through the precious blood of your Son, and that we would be diligent, even if it is from this time forward and on until you come, to be faithful stewards of Christ for your honor, for your glory, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.